Well, this evening we look together to the truth of God's Word as it is summarized in Lord's Day 28. You can find that on pages 36 through 38 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But before we talk about and read Lord's Day 28, I'd like to read with you two passages of Scripture, both of them relatively brief. The first is Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah, I've mentioned this before, the book is really divided into two parts, three really. Uh, The first section of Isaiah is really a condemnation of their sin, a calling them to repentance, an assurance that there's going to be a consequence for their sin. And then there's a very brief historical interlude concerning the reign of Hezekiah and how God preserved him in the midst of enemies and in the midst of sickness. And then starting with chapter 40, from 40 to 66, there's this hope, this confidence that though God's anger at sin bursts forth, yet His mercy is new every day. He always sustains and strengthens and restores His people and they can be confident in Him. And in the midst of that, chapter 55 gives this This calling, this invitation to respond to that mercy of God, to His loving kindness, not by standing far off, not by being lukewarm, but by seeking after Him, by trusting Him, by actively resting in the Lord. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Thus, the invitation to and the promise of Christ, who restores God's people when they receive Him by faith. Well, looking forward to Christ, in Mark chapter 14, 
we find him gathered with his disciples. And beginning in verse 22 of Mark 14, we read, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Thus far the the reading of God's holy word. Now, Lord's Day 28 has three questions and answers. They're fairly lengthy Before we read those, we need to recognize kind of the context here. Lord's Days 28, 29, and 30 all deal with the Lord's Supper. We maybe wonder why. Why so much space on one sacrament? But our forefathers, nearly 500 years ago, when they they composed this catechism, they recognized that in their age there was... Much controversy surrounding the sacraments and especially this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this age in which they lived was not new in that respect. There had always been varying degrees of controversy over the meaning, the significance, the the use of the Lord's Supper. So they resolved to explain it quite carefully so that we, in studying it, might recognize the supreme importance of the Lord's Supper, but at the same time might not be tempted to to misunderstand it or misuse it. But each of the three Lord's Days that deal with the Lord's Supper deal with it differently. Lord's Day 28, which we look at today, is the most basic. It calls us to ask simply, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is its sacramental role in the church? Next week, Lord willing, we look at Lord's Day 29, and that calls us to to ask a more practical, hands-on question. What actually happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How does God use it? And then chapter 30, or uh, Lord's Day 30, examines a more difficult question, gets into the controversies, if you will. Asking first, who shall come to the Lord's Supper, and then Why shall they come? Why is it important? What do you expect when you come to the Lord's table? These are two issues that have been controversies throughout the ages. So that's what we're going to look at. First of all, the basic question of what is it? Then the deeper question of how does God use it? And then finally, who shall come and why? So today we look at the most basic questions in Lord's Day 28, where it asks, how does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you That you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. And with the command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, given to me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat his crucified, the the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? Well, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ, and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins 
and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although He is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Amen. Beloved members of the body of Christ, every so often... Six times a year, to be exact, we alter our worship service just a bit to incorporate an extra element, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. On those days, the sermon is just a smidge shorter. We take the time to read the words of a form to remind us of our purpose, and then we together eat some bread and drink some wine, just a bit of each, just a taste. And this Lord's Day asks us, why do we do that? What's our purpose? What is the goal for which God gave that sacrament, that ritual? You know, in many churches, they've embraced the practice of pausing the worship service, if you will, to have a, a child's, children's sermon. At a certain time, the kids come forward, the minister sits down and and oftentimes he'll take a, a, a bag, a sack of some sort, maybe a grocery sack or a backpack, and he'll pull something out. And that something is meant to illustrate some lesson about the gospel. It might relate to the sermon that's coming. It might not at all. You know, so maybe he'll uh, pull out a bottle of bleach and ask them if, if they know what that's for and what that is used for. And use that as an illustration of how Christ cleanses our soul and removes all the defilement. Or maybe he'll bring out a light bulb to show that we can't fulfill our purpose unless we have a source of power, just like that light bulb has no, no ability to fulfill its purpose unless it's plugged into an electric socket. Any number of items might be pulled out of the bag to demonstrate the week's Bible lesson. In a similar way, ministers in some churches use movie clips or artwork to illustrate the point that they're making, to try to convey the significance of the lesson that their words are teaching. But we don't do those kind of things. We don't have children's stories in the worship service with object lessons. We don't have a projector that shows clips of movies. And that's not merely a matter of preference that maybe we find those things tacky or distracting. It's a matter of principle. We believe that God wants His people 
taught His will by the word that is preached, by the word that is proclaimed. In fact, we believe that by the word that is preached, God is ordained to form faith within us and to build that faith, maturing us as we hear the word proclaimed. That doesn't mean that God doesn't understand, that God doesn't know that we can learn other ways, that we can learn by seeing, by feeling, by touching. Of course God understands that we can learn in different ways and that sometimes things seem more real to us, more concrete, more understandable if they're presented in a more visual way. God created us. He understands the different ways in which we learn. And yet He has commanded us to not make a bunch of images or use images from the world in trying to convey the gospel. Instead, in order to satisfy that desire that we have, to have something that we can see, something that we can touch, something that we can smell and even taste, God has given us images called the sacraments, which perfectly portray the absolute essential heart of the gospel in a way that we cannot fail. To grow, well, I guess we can fail. But by His Spirit, we cannot fail to grasp it. In many ways, these are very simple images. They don't require a bunch of props. They aren't dramatic or surprising to watch. And yet, by means of these sacraments regularly displayed before us, our Lord reveals truths that are absolutely profound. In fact, beside these images that God has ordained for us, the very best object lessons we could come up with would be pitiable. Well, as I said before, Lord's Day 28 calls us to ask a question about one of those sacraments. It calls us to ask, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? And the answer we shall see is that Christ visibly reveals His covenant promises by means of the Lord's Supper. He visibly reveals His covenant promises by means of the Lord's Supper. And the first aspect of that revealing is when our Lord displays what He has done. And notice the pronoun, what He has done. Because what He has done is bring about the fulfillment of His covenant promises. Do you remember the, the heart of the covenant that God gave to His people? We heard it expressed last week when we were talking about baptism. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God said to Abraham and to his people after him, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. But how can we be his people? How can he be our God? Because after all, we're disfigured by our sin and rebellion. We're unclean and defiled. We're unworthy to enter into his presence. We cannot be as the offspring of Adam, as the sinful people we were born as. We cannot be his people unless something dramatic changes us. Some in some way, we must be forgiven our sins. Justice must be met on our behalf. The defilement must, must be cleansed from us and we must be ushered into His presence. We cannot do that. We're unqualified. We're too sinful. We're too broken. If we are to be restored to God, beloved, as He promised we would be, it must happen according to His plan and through His action. And that's just what He promised would occur in the passage we read 
from Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He urges us to come and eat, to come and receive that which will sustain our very lives. But not by making a fair trade for it, not by bartering for it, not by paying for what we for it with what we have earned. No. He urges us to come and take it freely. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That's what we do naturally, isn't it? We work and we strive and we seek to be righteous in the sight of men, but even the best of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God because it's stained with our sin. It's useless for making us right with God. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Only what we receive from God is worthy. Only what we receive from Him can give us true life. And what we need from Him is someone to pay the price for our sin. And that price is nothing short of death and exile. At the very start, our Creator, kids, what did He, what command did He give? You shall not eat of the fruit of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's what happened, right? He was cut off from God. That's the essence of death. He was sent away from the garden and away from the tree of life. Thereafter, he would be living in the midst of death until death overtook his body. That's what man deserves. They deserve death. For their sin. They deserve exile from God because sin brings defilement and defilement cannot live in the presence of God. We learn that throughout Scripture. What did we see when we studied the Day of Atonement? The, the ceremony of the scapegoat in which all the sins of Israel were ceremonially laid upon his head. And then it was led out into the wilderness to be abandoned there, away from all the blessings of God. We saw it earlier when we considered the, the uh, lepers. What happened to a leper? He was considered to be defiled and therefore he was sent away from the camp because in the midst of the camp dwelt God. And God cannot, will not dwell in the midst of defilement. That's the price that has to be paid. Someone has to take our defilement for us. Someone has to embrace our exile. Someone must die if we are to live and be restored. And that's exactly why Jesus came. That's the first lesson of the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave the Lord's Supper to display what He had done. We raise our eyes and we see that bread torn, broken. It was a whole loaf and it is ripped in shreds. That's the way Jesus, the Son of Man, was broken for our sin. He was ripped by the soldiers, torn by nails, mangled by the cross to pay our price. When you see the wine freely poured from the vessel, think of His blood freely pouring from His body and staining the ground below Him. It was for your sin that He bled, for our defilement that we might be cleansed. And God did not intervene. He was exiled. When He cried out to God, no one answered. When He looked for the light that signified the face of God, all He saw was darkness. And He did this so that your price, our price, might be fully paid. He was broken, even as the bread is broken, so that we could be made whole. His blood was, was 
shed completely. His life taken so that ours could be preserved. His essence poured out that we might be brought near. Folks, that's the lesson of the supper. A lesson that's shocking in its blunt cruelty. We see it and we we ask, who would do this for someone as unworthy and as unthankful as us? Who would pay this price for men and women so absolutely unable to repay? And the Lord answers, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways or your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Praise the Lord. And along with the lesson of what He has done comes an assurance. The human race in sin is filled with doubters. Never satisfied until we see it with our own eyes, test it with our own hands. So the Lord offers in the Lord's Supper an assurance that we can see and taste and smell. How real is this sacrifice? Did it, did it really happen or was it just some metaphor? How can we be sure? And He hands us the bread and says, take it, feel it, taste it. That's how real this sacrifice was. Put the wine in your mouth and taste its tang on your tongue. That's how sure you can be that Jesus truly, physically and spiritually paid the price of your sin. It's that real. It's that concrete. It's that undoubted. Brothers and sisters, when we see the Lord's Supper, when we partake of it, we need to examine what is happening before our very eyes. The image of the horrid breaking of His breath the suffering that so freely poured forth His blood, the agony that He experienced in the midst of that suffering, which was not just a physical agony, but a spiritual agony as He bore the wrath of God against our sin. How unbearable. And yet He did that for us. That is the assurance of this display. We who were given the promise of the waters of baptism. The promise that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And just as that water cleanses your body, so my blood will cleanse your soul. The Lord's Supper says, this is what the cost was. This is how it was paid. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in recognition of what I have done, how I have paid. It's not just a theory on paper. It's something we can feel, something we can taste. It's as real as the food on your plate. And yet it's not only about what Jesus has done, this sacrament of the supper. It also was given to demonstrate what we receive According to the promise of the covenant. Because God promised not only that He would be our God, but that we would be made His people. So the assurance of the Lord's Supper speaks not only to what Jesus has done, but to what we now receive. Listen to to what our catechism says. In answer 75, it says, As surely as I receive... From the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. At the start, 
God gave to our first father, not only a warning about the consequence of sin, but also the promise of eternal life. If Adam had obeyed, think about this, if Adam had obeyed, he had rejected Satan's temptation, refused the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been able to partake of the tree of life, that he might live forever. Now, of course, Adam lost access to that tree of life when he sinned. But now, through the Lord's Supper, Christ assures us, through my gracious covenant, you have regained that promise of the tree of life. You have been given access to its fruit because the tree of life is ours in Christ. Jesus Christ is, in a sense, the fruit of the covenant, the source of nourishment for eternal life. His flesh was broken To make us whole. So as we partake of this sacrament, we're given the assurance. Just as that bread that you eat nourishes your body, strengthens it, gives it fuel. So Jesus nourishes your soul that you might truly live. We need to take comfort in the reality of that bread and the wine that we consume. We know, we know this bread, you doubt it. Take that bread from the Lord's Supper. Take it to a catechism class afterward. They know that it'll quiet the rumble in their belly. Right? We know that that bread is good to nourish us. And we need to wrestle with the reality that it is Christ who will fill that aching void in our soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? It is only God who can fill that ache, who can, who can fill that void. And Christ shows us by the bread of the supper that He is able to fill that void. And the wine, wine doesn't nourish us. Wine gives us motivation to celebrate, right? Right? When we sit down with the family to celebrate, maybe we break out a a bottle of wine. That certainly was the, the practice in ancient Israel. We talked this morning about the feasts. And during that feast of booths, man, that was that was the feast of feasts. There were so many animals slaughtered and and brought forth as sacrifice, and that much of that sacrifice was given to the people. To eat, to feast together. And the bottles of wine. This happened right at the end of the the grape harvest, by the way. So the previous year's wine was primed to drink. And they spent the week feasting together and drinking of the wine that God had given them. Not to drunkenness, not by any means, but in celebration of what God had done, how God had blessed And he says, just as surely as you drink that wine in celebration, so surely you have the ability now to celebrate life in the new kingdom, life in communion with God. But brothers and sisters, we cannot be nourished unto true life. We cannot have, we cannot partake of that celebration unless we respond. Children, think on this. In just a few weeks, you're going to sit down at a Thanksgiving meal, right? If your parents are wise, they didn't feed you much that morning because they know you're going to eat way too much during the lunch, right? You see all that food, you smell those savory flavors. 
But none of that food can help you. It can't nourish you. It can't fill you. Unless you first, it sounds simple, but unless you believe that that food will nourish you, will satisfy you, and you believe enough to reach out and take some to put it on your plate, and then to put it in your mouth and chew and swallow, if you believe that food isn't really nourishing, if you believe that food isn't really going to be good, you won't try it, you won't eat it, and it won't nourish you. So it is with the Lord's Supper. It can't bless us. It can't strengthen us unless we take and eat, remember and believe. Because we must look not to the bread, not to the wine, but to that which it displays, to the blood of Christ, to the body that was broken for Him. We must partake with true faith. We must partake with our eyes upon Christ. Remembering what Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And He will have mercy on Him. We must partake with faith, looking truly to Christ, believing that He is able to nourish us unto life and to give us joy that this world cannot steal away. We must partake trusting in Christ. And if we do, brothers and sisters, if we do, then what we receive is nothing less than the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ. And Lord's Day 28 doesn't quite stop there because the Lord's Supper doesn't stop there. It shows us very vividly what Jesus did for us. It shows us very clearly what we receive when we receive Christ by faith. But it also shows us something else. It shows us what we have become when we've come to Christ. And that's our final point here. What happens when you chew that food? And swallow it down. What happens to it? Even you little kids know that, right? It starts to be absorbed into your body, in your stomach, in your intestines. It, it breaks apart into teeny tiny little parts that are absorbed, much of it, into your bloodstream. And it's distributed throughout your body where it fuels your cells in various ways. It becomes part of you. Same with the wine is so joined to us that we can't really fully separate it back out. And so too when we partake of Christ by faith. Just as we are united to the bread that enters our mouths, so are we united to Christ when we receive Him by faith. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 10, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And congregation, it is. That's why Hebrews repeatedly calls those who have faith in Christ sharers or partakers in Christ. It's why Peter in 2 Peter 1 says that through the divine promises we have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sin. This astonishing sacrament reveals that in partaking of Christ by faith... We've been joined to Him. That's not something we can see with our eyes, but the Lord's Supper allows us to recognize that we have been joined to Him. Just as that bread is united to our bodies and and also the wine, so we have been joined to Christ so that His death has become our death. His new life has become our new life. We have the assurance that just as He is in heaven, He is the first fruits, and we shall join Him there. That's why Jesus said in, in John 6... I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And farther on, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We eat of his flesh and drink of his blood when we receive him by faith. Believing all that he has done is for us. Is truly given to us. And when he joins us to himself, brothers and sisters, he necessarily joins us to one another. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Here the image changes a little bit. No longer talking about just me and Jesus, me and the bread of life, but now it's me and you eating of the same loaf. When we join together, the minister says, take and eat, remember and believe, and you see 200 hands lift up to their mouths. You see an image of the unity that we have in Christ. A unity that is not based simply on a shared creed. A unity that is not based simply on shared interests or nationality or anything of the sort. But a unity that is real. Because we all have been joined to Christ. His Spirit dwells in each one of us. And that means that one Spirit unites us all. When you take a loaf of bread, it's not always been a unified thing. We look at it, we say it's a loaf of bread. It's one thing. But it's actually the product of all those grains of wheat that have been brought together in the cooking process, the baking process, and made to be one. We look at the wine. It wasn't originally one. It was the constituent product of a whole bunch of different grapes that have been brought together. And so us, we were individuals in our sin, but when we came to Christ, when He drew us to Himself, He joined us to Christ, He filled us with the Holy Spirit, and He made us one. A living body of which Christ is the head. A living temple. Each of us different stones, but in the whole, the Holy Spirit dwells. We are one, having an absolute unity. And we see that when we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is the the reason that it's so essential. When we read passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, Where it says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them highly in love. Be at peace among yourselves. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. In, In our high school catechism class this morning, we talked about the duty we have, the the obligation we have toward one another. In church discipline. It's not, a, it's not an acceptable thing to see one of our brothers or sisters living in a sin that, that demonstrates that he's separating himself from Christ and say, well, that's not my business. It is your business. It must be your business because you are one in Christ. And because you're one in Christ, you love each other and you care for each other and you nurture one another. You must. And the Lord's Supper it emphasizes that fact. We are one. We partake of the one bread. We, we drink of the one blood of Christ. And the one Holy Spirit dwells in us all. How glorious is this new reality that is revealed to us in the Lord's Supper. 
And now it falls to us, brothers and sisters, to use the illustration he has given. You see, this, this lesson cannot be merely academic. The illustration he's given in the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not something that we can just hear and smile and, and forget. No, he gives it that we might use it. Christ wants us to partake of the Lord's Supper with understanding. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we must not mindlessly partake of the Lord's Supper, somberly taking a piece of bread and chewing. Only to remark later on the texture of the bread. It was a little dry this time. Partaking of the wine with more thought of the wine than of what it signifies. No, no, no. When the bread is broken and we watch the wine poured out, we must recognize the display of what He has done. And when it's distributed among us, we must recognize that demonstration of what we now receive, how we partake of Christ. And then as we watch, when the minister says, take, eat, remember, and believe, and we see all those hands go up, all those heads go back, we need to wrestle with the reality, this is the body of which Christ has made me part. What is my calling with regard to these saints to whom I've been joined? Understand this revelation that has been given to you, brothers and sisters, and having understood, rejoice. Rejoice that He has done this for you. Rejoice that He has called you to eat of the tree of life. Rejoice that you have been called to eat and live together with these saints. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, let us do so with understanding. Celebrating that God has given this for us, has done this for us. That we in Him might live, together might live eternally. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You know exactly what we need. You know precisely the images that we need, the lessons that we need, the assurance that we crave. And so, Father, we pray that You would continue not just to give those lessons but to use them to build us up and to strengthen us and to encourage us. Grant that we, partaking of the Lord's Supper, might do so with understanding and with intentionality, that our faith might be deepened and grown, that our children might grow in the knowledge of what You have promised, and that this church might be knit together more and more in Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.